You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Early in the pandemic, the question was whether a cooped-up planet would produce more babies or fewer. The answer is now clear. Many, many fewer. We look into the prospect that on a planet with fewer people, there are fewer transformative ideas. And a famed series of sculptures known as the Benin Bronzes has become a focal point in a global discussion about the restitution of artworks to their homelands. It's a debate that raises tempers and a great many questions. First up, though. Since 2013, French armed forces have been stationed in the Sahel, fighting jihadists. France's forces have been stretched, just over 5,000 of its troops for a region roughly the size of Western Europe. Such counterinsurgency operations might be challenging, but these days, France's generals have their sights on something far larger. In the forests and the plains of the Champagne-Ardennes region, the armed forces are beginning to prepare for the return of a major conflict. Exercise Orion, a giant drill planned for 2023, will involve the full range of French military capacity on a scale not tested for decades. The spectre of high-end war is now so widespread um, when you talk to military analysts that there is an acronym for this scenario, HEM, which stands for, the English translation is a hypothesis of a major engagement. Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief. And it's really a seismic shift, I would say, for French forces, because if you think back 30 years ago, most of them were involved in overseas operations in peacekeeping. And over the last decade, it's been a question of uh, counterterrorism or counterinsurgency. Most of that's either been in Operation Barkhane in the Sahel, or even a counterterrorist operation called Operation Sentinelle in France itself. But last year, the head of the army, General Thierry Barkhane, presented a strategic vision for 2030, so looking ahead to the next decade. And in it, he described and outlined the need for the army to prepare for high-intensity state-on-state conflict. And he had this line, which was very striking. He said, the return of a major conflict is now a credible hypothesis. And is it? Is that something that France needs to be worried about? Well, General Birka seems to think so. We interviewed him recently, and he told us that we absolutely have to prepare for a more dangerous world. Il faut absolument... This requires what he calls a hardening of the land army. If you take, for example, the French operation in the Sahel, they have 5,100 soldiers out there. But the future operations that they're planning for now could involve something between 8,000 or 25,000 soldiers. 
So it's really a huge change of scale. And General Berka said that it's going to require a number of reforms from more demanding and selective recruitment into the army in the first place, more investment in modern equipment, much simpler organisational structures so that the army can be more nimble and more efficient and a tougher training regime in order to prepare the land army for major conflict. The military staff have set up 10 working groups that have been looking into scenarios and cover everything from munitions shortages to even the resilience of society, you know, whether or not citizens would be ready to accept levels of casualties that we really haven't seen since probably World War II. And who is the imagined enemy here? Where is France anticipating conflict flaring up? They're not named the uh, presumed opponents, although if you ask analysts, the obvious ones would be possibly Russia, possibly Turkey, possibly a North African country somewhere in the eastern or southern Mediterranean. But already, if you look at where the French keep their forces overseas, they're already in some ways stretched and being pulled in several directions. If you look at their contribution to NATO battle groups, for example, stationed in Poland and the Baltic states, the French have sent troops to eastern Estonia. They're also operating in the eastern Mediterranean. You remember that France and Turkey clashed uh, at one point just off the coast in Libya. They have done in Cyprus. And on top of that, France is involved in the Indo-Pacific, where it has a steady naval presence in the area and regularly sails through the South China Sea. So that is a question of choices. And we also interviewed France's chief of naval staff, Admiral Pierre Vendier, who said, ultimately, it's a question of priorities and those priorities have to come from the politicians. And so is France on track to make the reforms that are necessary to handle the kind of conflicts that we're talking about here? If you look at the defense budget, there's been a significant increase from about 2019 all the way through to 2025. By 2025, there will be an increase in the budget to 50 billion euros, uh, which will be more than 40% up on the level in 2018. So it it is a significant increase. Analysts outside the military staff recognize that for the first time, there is this real match between the ambitions and the monies allocated. I mean, an example is the core modernization program, which is known as Scorpion, which will replace every single frontline motorized and armored vehicle and upgrade all the 1990s era tanks and connect all these together over a single digital network. And the first brigade should be ready by 2023. So I think there is a feeling that the French are now putting the money into defense in a significant way, into modernization, and it takes their entire budget over the 2% of GDP requested by NATO. And so it's just a matter of spending, the hardware, the kit, the technology. Well, it's interesting. It's not quite as simple as that, because if you look at the difference between the French upgrade program and the British, what's striking is that the British are focused much more on a tech-heavy vision of future war, whereas the French are concerned more with the actual boots on the ground. And if you look at the cuts, for example, France is keeping 60% more soldiers than Britain plans to, and 50% more tanks. On the other hand, it's been relatively slow to do things like arm or even acquire drones, and there are some concerns that it's falling behind on the automation on the battlefield. When you talk to French officers, they are a little bit more sceptical than British or American ones about how far technology will or even ought to transform the battlefield. Le, la technologie, elle n'est jamais euh, efficace à 100%. General Burkhart told us, you know, technology is never 100% effective. Qui impose pour les soldats de l'armée terre de toujours être capable in fine de combattre de manière dégradée. Mm. And soldiers need to be able to operate in an environment where their technology is degraded and it doesn't work anymore. 
Of course, it doesn't mean that France is not doing anything in the new domains of war, things like space or cyber. Last year in September, France's Air Force became the Air and Space Force. They are investing and looking into those domains. But I think, importantly, it's a question of where they put the priority and how far they want to let technology drive the vision of future war. How does all this modernization and beefing up fit in with how France will be working with with military partners? In all of their scenario plannings, they assume that they're working alongside allies of some sort. And that could be NATO, that could be the Americans. And all that, of course, raises the question of how far those sorts of scenarios mesh with President Macron's political ambitions to create uh, European defence. This is a sort of ongoing question about whether or not his vision is a complement to NATO or a sort of rival to it. But those are questions that the end of the day are for the politicians and what we've been looking at is really how the military and the military chiefs are preparing themselves to be able to put their troops into battle in case of a major conflict. Sophie, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. It's a pleasure. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. There's no perfect time to have a baby. But for prospective parents, a pandemic might have seemed even less perfect. Birth rates have dropped significantly over the past year, as much as 15% in both China and America. That's enough of a decrease to bend the long arc of global population forecasts. And that baby bust doesn't just threaten economic growth. A world of fewer people could be a less innovative one. If you look back pre-pandemic at all the varying population projections over the next century... What most of them showed was continued growth in population into the sort of second half of the 21st century, and then population reaching a plateau. Somewhere at around a population of 10 billion, things start to level off. Ryan Avent writes Free Exchange, the economist's column on economics. 45%, nearly half of all people on Earth, live in countries now where the fertility rate is below replacement levels. A lot of rich countries have dropped below replacement rate, and emerging markets look like they're going to be doing much the same thing. Okay, so we were already approaching peak population. Now there's been this pandemic baby bust. Where does that leave us? So if you sort of look at these fertility trends that we're seeing and then imagine how they're compounded by this baby bust that we experienced as a result of the pandemic, you come away with two conclusions. One is that, first of all, population is likely to peak a lot earlier than we thought, perhaps closer to mid-century than the end of the century. And then also, once we hit that peak, it seems quite possible that rather than just sort of leveling off, that we actually continue to see a decline in population, which would be a a dramatic change relative to where we've been over the past two centuries. But what what are the consequences of that? I mean, that is less demand on scarce resources, less damage to the environment and so on. Is that a bad thing? I think that's people's immediate intuition is that population grows slowing and perhaps reversing itself. Maybe that makes a lot of our serious environmental problems a lot easier. 
if the population is falling because women across poor countries are enjoying more freedom, better access to contraception and to job markets, that's a good thing. And then I guess economically, you know, if we look back at events like the Black Death, as a consequence of that dramatic population decline, there was a, a scarcity of workers relative to land and resources and other things. And that meant more freedom for workers and much higher income levels. But beyond that, you end up having a population distribution that skews toward the old, which means, first of all, you're going to have huge labor needs in areas like home care, health care. You know, you've got concerns about the sustainability of debt loads, sustainability of pension plans, all of that stuff that The Economist writes about all the time. But then I think there's another issue, which we probably don't think about nearly enough. But an interesting recent paper by this growth economist at Stanford University, whose name is Charles Jones, points out that if you have fewer people around, you have fewer new ideas, fewer new scientific discoveries, technological innovations. And if the supply of new ideas were to constrict enough, then whatever economic benefits we might have expected to see from reduced resource pressure, higher wages, that sort of thing, might be canceled out entirely. Simply for a dearth of new ideas. That's right. I mean, you, you may think, what's the big deal with ideas? But if you really want to generate sustained income increases over time, what you need is new knowledge. You need either new tasks of value that we can use existing resources to do, or you need to come up with new and better ways of doing things. And so if you look back at the last 100, 200 years, we've had extraordinary population growth. Population has grown from 1 billion to almost 8 billion. But despite that, because of this flow of new technologies new ways of doing things, we've seen growth in income per person. And the worry would be that if you no longer have the flow of ideas that you had before, then you can't sustain that growth and living standards level out or even fall. Right, but the projections have peak population at something like 10 billion people. Even among 10 billion people, there wouldn't be enough ideas to get this kind of work smarter, not harder to work? I think if we're sort of thinking about the short term, the next generation or two, then the kinds of dynamics that Charles Jones is writing about maybe aren't nearly as important as other things. But just in the way that, you know, growth runs into diminishing returns without new ideas, this process of discovering new ideas along a lot of margins runs into diminishing returns. And we see this in the real world. We see that the, the amount of research effort that goes into generating a doubling of computing power has gone up and up and up over time. And so really, in some crucial way, population size itself matters. So how does Mr. Jones suggest that we get past that loss to up the number of ideas? I think you can talk about ways in which it might be feasible to increase fertility rates by alleviating a lot of the hardships associated with childbearing and childcare, improving safety nets and things like that, getting rid of discrimination in the, in the workforce against mothers who have children. But I think from my own perspective, the critical thing in the short run is to really make much better use of the, the human potential that we have now. Part of what that means is not cutting back on education budgets, not cutting back on research budgets, but also looking out at the world and seeing, well, we have almost 8 billion people. That is just a massive amount of brain power and potential creative energy there. Uh, if only we were doing more to allow all those billions to reach their full potential. It's an interesting thing to think about, the species being at this sort of point in our history, this critical point, where our decisions really have a significant effect on what it all ends up meaning and where we are, you know, millennia down the road. I think if you imagine the perspective of people who have landed in the equilibrium that we create now, 
It seems to me that they will find it foolish that advanced economies today didn't invest lavishly in the talents of the world's poor billions. Ryan, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. For decades, countries that lost cultural artifacts in times of war and conflict have been campaigning to get them back. Attention has particularly focused on the Benin bronzes, intricate metal plaques and sculptures. Many were taken by the British at the end of the 19th century in what is now Benin City in Nigeria. They were scattered in museums and collections across the world. Now, some might at last be going back. It's really an extraordinary moment after years, if not decades, of Nigerians pushing for the Benin Bronzes to be returned to Nigeria and basically being ghosted. Things are really on the move. Fiamata Rocco is The Economist's culture correspondent. I think there's a new generation of people who are interested in examining the history of colonialism and empire. There's a new generation of scholars. There are two new books that have come out on the Benin Bronzers, both of which have really helped move this forward. How so? How is the scholarship changing things? So last November, Dan Hicks, a curator at the Pitt Rivers Museum, brought out a book called, quite controversially, The Brutish Museums, in which he examined the manner in which the Benin Bronzers had been seized. And now Barnaby Phillips has written another book that adds yet more context to the whole story of the Benin Bronzers. Both books demonstrate beyond doubt that they were seized as military booty in circumstances that would now really be described as the unlawful destruction of cultural heritage by the UN Security Council. And I think one of the reasons why this case is so much at the forefront of the discussions about restitution is its clear-cut history. The way these objects were taken offers such a moral question about whether restitution should happen, what kind of restitution there should be. And and why is that, though? Why are these artifacts in particular so important in, in that discussion? Well, they are historically extraordinarily important. They were made in medieval times in Benin City in what was known as Edo, which was a a huge, thriving city-state full of artistic creativity and military power at the same time. And in 1600, a Dutch visitor who went there described the palace of the Oba or the king as so large that you can feel no end. And the walls are decorated with elaborate metal plaques that depicted hunters and musicians and courtiers and animals. They are absolutely unmistakable. And the controversy arises as to how it was that they left Nigeria in the first place. In 1897, ostensibly in retribution for an attack which killed seven British officers, they launched an attack of their own on Benin City, But it wasn't really a retribution. It was a very, very well thought out, clearly planned operation with massive armory. Looting by the soldiers of all the treasures was allowed 
and even encouraged in part to pay for the expedition. Today, they are spread across 160 museums across the world, host of private collections, chiefly in America, in Britain, and in Germany. But as you say, and as we've spoken about before, that this movement for restitution is gaining ever more momentum. What, what institutions are, are on board with restitution? So the big change that's come this year has been announcement by the German government that they are going to negotiate with the Nigerians for the return of their massive holdings of Benin bronzes. This is enormous. There are other institutions that have been looking at this very, very carefully. At the end of March, Aberdeen University in Scotland became the first place in Britain for over 50 years to announce that they were going to send their Benin bronze back to Nigeria. I think that where we're going to see the earliest moves on this score are going to be in British and American museums that have small holdings. That, of course, leaves the British Museum, which has the single biggest holding in the world, almost a 1,000 pieces. But the British Museum and the Victoria and Albert Museum in London would require a change in the law for the restitution of these pieces. And so far, they have kept quite stum about what they're going to do. And when we've talked about restitution before, it's not a very straightforward question. There are, there are risks as well. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, there are different views even within Nigeria itself. You know, on one hand, you have the governor of Edo State who has commissioned Sir David Ajay, the architect of the Smithsonian African American Museum in Washington, to build a new museum and educational facility in Benin City. But there are also many people in Nigeria who think that perhaps this money should be spent on hospitals or on schools. So... There are competing visions. What's interesting is how far we've come already. And I think that moral momentum is not going to go away. Fiametta, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Kim Gittleson. Our senior producers are Chris Impey, Hannah Mourinho, and Sam Colbert. Our producers are Stevie Hertz and William Warren, and assistant producer Jason Hoskin. Our sound engineer is Daniel Lloyd Evans, with help this week from Sol Rivers, and our trainee is Abisoye Oshindairo. We'll all see you back here on Monday. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.